0: Thank you, Lee. Well, as one brother said to me after telling him what part of Colossians I had to uh, preach on this morning, "Oh, the list of names! <laughs> what are you going to do with that?" And, you know, the same reaction has uh, can be had from many parts of Scripture. You could think about the the lists of names and characters that are in the different chapters in your Bible that when you study, your eyes just kind of glaze over and you read almost rhythmically, just through it, but not really processing and you trudge on. Names are difficult to pronounce because they didn't name their children like we name our children today. They didn't name them Cindy or Barry or Alan or or Laura. So we tend to just kind of pass over those names, not actually processing because the names are so unfamiliar to us. We don't give them a second thought. How many, and you don't need to raise your hand, but how many have simply skipped over whole chapters in your reading? It's it's not an uncommon thing that, that we do as believers when we get to those portions. And over the years, I have learned to cherish those portions of the Bible. As I read through those names, I'm reminded of people in my life, people that I know. You see, the best thing about being a Christian, hands down, is knowing the Lord Jesus and having a personal relationship with him. Christ died for me and rose again so that I can have eternal life. Paul writes a lot about Jesus as he has written throughout this series, as we have learned throughout this series and he's written here in the book of Colossians. But the second best thing about being a Christians are other Christians other Christians, you cannot find a greater group of people with whom to live your life with, with whom you can share your life with. We, when we live our lives in the model of the New Testament, loving one another as Christ loved us, well, we show the world that we are his disciples. And Paul writes a lot about people that served alongside him, just like we have in our text this morning so when I see a list of names in the Bible, I can't help but think about each one of those people. And they each meant something to the writer, and they each meant something to the people to whom that book was written to. And more importantly, those people meant something to God. I wanna put out here to begin with that we should be working together to share the good news of God's grace because of what really matters, and what really matters are people. C.S. Lewis, in his book, or in his uh, sermon, The Weight of Glory, says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked with a mere mortal. It is with immortals that you joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Some people think that the best thing in life that they can do is give their lives to their country or to a government, and they spend their life striving to make a better country or a better government. But when we look back at history, we see that governments and countries have come and gone. The country that was once called one thing has changed over time in history, and it doesn't last forever. Some people think that the best thing that they can do is to give their lives to an ideology, uh, uh, to seek and spread the ideas that they feel are right and true. But looking back at history, we see that those ideologies change along with the people. And, and many have existed over the years, many different ideologies, and they don't matter at all. Now, some people think that knowledge, that Everything that they can learn is the best thing to live for, that to strive to learn more and more, but when they look back at history, think back to history about what, what people used to think was truth and what they think now and know now was not true. People used to think that the world was flat, and we laugh now because we can look out at the horizon and see, look, there's the curvature of the earth. We used to think that the sun revolved around the earth, but now we are a little bit more sophisticated and we understand that the earth is on an axis spinning and it's orbiting around the sun. What really matters are people. You and I will exist somewhere forever. You and I will not cease to exist. Our flesh, what we see and feel, it is temporary, but you and I will exist. And that's what makes us different than all other creatures here on earth. You have never talked with a mere mortal. People are what matter, and our passage demonstrates that clearly this morning as Paul demonstrates his love for people. So the New Testament was written over a, of a period of about less than 50 years. whole New Testament, 50 years. Compared to the Old Testament, the Old Testament was written over a course of about 1,400 years, but the New Testament was written by nine unique men. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, the writer to the Hebrews, James, Peter, and Jude. Nine different men, and they all knew one another. There was no seven degrees of separation with these men. They knew one another, and those in the Old Testament, by comparison, didn't know one another. Isaiah never knew Moses, and Jeremiah never knew the generations before him or after him. The books were inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they are written by nine flesh and blood men, people. And they're trying trying their best to come to grips in the New Testament, come to grips with the greatest change, the greatest spiritual change and the greatest intellectual change that has ever hit this world. The life and death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ it changed everything. It changed everything. It changed everything you knew about life. It changed everything you knew about eternal life. And I want to just take a step back for a moment. And I want to look at the New Testament from a different perspective. Oftentimes, we kind of get involved in all these theologies, in Christology and the eschatology and all the other ologies but they're out there and they're They're important, but if you get so bogged down in those things, you kind of miss something that's spectacularly important. You know, this is the order of the books in the New Testament. You see that uh, it starts with five books of history. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels. They talk about Jesus. They give us the story of his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. The book of Acts talks about how the gospel spread from Jerusalem towards the end of the earth. Then come the letters which hang the doctrinal framework as written by Paul. You see that the letters are organized from the shortest to the longest, and they start with the letters to the churches. Romans, which is the longest, then 1 Corinthians, followed by 2 Corinthians, then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Then there are the letters that are written to individuals. Again, organized the same way. 1st and 2nd Timothy, longest to shortest, Titus, and then Philemon, which is the shortest letter that Paul wrote to an individual. Next, in this group here, you've got the general epistles. Epistles not written by Paul. You've got Hebrews, James, the letters of... The letters of uh, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, and then finally Jude, who kind of writes to a new generation. And this makes perfect sense. And follow that, you've got your uh, books written by John and the Revelation at the end, which looks out to end times. But it makes perfect sense from a reasonable perspective. It does. It's the order that you might read through if you were to read through your Bible, in a read through your Bible program. It's the order that I learned as a kid. And if you look in your table of contents, you'll see that it's written exactly that way. So it makes sense, but it isn't divinely inspired, and it isn't mandated to be in that specific order. It's a matter of convention. It's it's not universally agreed upon. Some Eastern churches put the general epistles before the Pauline epistles, but If you were to read the books of the Bible in the order in which they were written, what would that table of contents look like? It would look about like this. You see, one thing I have found interesting is is when you start to mesh together the reading of the book of Acts with the letters as they were coming and going, you begin to, to get a new perspective on Paul and James and and on what those letters are saying and how they might have impacted those who are reading those letters, you get a sense of what Paul was being confronted with at the time that he wrote the letter. As an example, in Acts 17, Paul and other believers are run out of Thessalonica after just three weeks of being there. And then they're chased out of Berea, which is a... a, a, uh, and that happens right around 51 AD. He's chased out of there, and after he had been chased out, he's very concerned about those Thessalonian believers, and so he writes. You see, the very early on during his second missionary journey, he writes a letter, and then another letter back to those believers at the, at the church in Thessalonica, because he cared about them. He was deeply concerned for them. And when you read that letter, you start to pick up the language and the the concepts that he's put in there. and, And you see that concern that he has for them. So the first book of the New Testament written was James. And then immediately after that was Galatians. Paul's first missionary journey was to Galatia. And so therefore, his first missionary or his first epistle was actually written to Galatians. They're almost a a side-by-side comparison to one another if you were to read James and Galatians together. And then during Paul's second missionary journey, as I just talked about, he writes 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Then during his third missionary journey, he writes 1st Corinthians, Philippians, 2nd Corinthians, Romans, 1st Timothy, and Titus. Then you start to have the first gospels as Mark and Matthew write their gospels and the, and the epistle to the Hebrews is written and Luke and Acts. Now is when things are starting, the history is starting to come together. Luke has his two-volume uh, letter. After that, we have what are called Paul's prison epistles. When Paul was, was getting uh, Closer to the end of his ministry. And they're all carried by the same people. All three of those letters carried by the same people. And then you have 2 Peter and 2 Timothy. And these two men are at the end of their lives by the time they're writing these books. The apostles are passing from the scene. And it's as they're passing from the scene, Jude writes to the next generation. And finally, you have the writings of John. John is an old man when he's writing this. He writes his gospel, his letters, and then the revelation. Now, not all Bible scholars agree on the order, and historians agree on the order. You'll see I have an asterisk here next to Philippians. Some might put Philippians down here with the uh, prison epistles. There's some context within the book itself that you might debate as to when and where he had written it, but... That's not important for our discussion this morning, but I want you to notice that there are a group of letters, as I pointed out, all three written at the same time, and there was probably a fourth letter, and we read that that letter was to the Laodiceans. Now, Paul encourages the Colossi Christians to read that letter and you won't find in your Bible a letter to the Laodiceans like you find to the Colossians. Now Jesus in the book of Revelation there's a letter there but not like Colossians. There are unsung heroes in the Bible. Women and men who carry letters like these of Paul and Peter and John and the book of Hebrews, men and women who carried Luke's two-volume history to Theophilus. The Gospels of Mark and Matthew were carried. God preserved these people as they traveled roads, in and out of cities, on open seas, carrying them with writings that we embrace today as the foundation of Christianity. In April of 1860, two young, skinny, wiry fellows were galloping on fast horses across the western frontier. One headed west and the other east on the Pony Express. So before the Pony Express, it took weeks, if not months, for information and letters to go from the eastern part of the United States to the western part of the United States. And so the Pony Express promised to deliver a... uh, Anything between St. Paul, St. Joseph, Missouri, in the western terminal of the nation's railway system, all the way out to Sacramento, California, in 10 days or less. Think about that, 10 days or less. The Pony Express Network was a masterpiece of organization covering 1,966 miles, with 100 in relay state, 190 relay stations set 10 to 15 miles apart. A rider would get on, gallop as fast as he could with a bag of about 20 pounds of mail. And he would gallop as fast as he could to the next station, where he would leap off his horse that he just rode, jump onto a fresh horse, and continue on. And they would do that for about eight stations, and then a new rider would take over. The system used 400 horses and 80 riders who were each paid $25 a week to face an empty wilderness howling blizzards, scorching sun, and the occasional attack by Indians. So if you were looking for a job in the one ads, you would see this advertisement. Wanted. Young, skinny, wiry fellows, not over 18. You must be an expert rider willing to risk death daily. Orphans preferred. Ten days to cross the West was like lightning in 1860. Ten days. This idea that we have that information would take ten days to get somewhere is so foreign to us here in the United States. We have a a technologically advanced age, and so we tend to miss things. We get frustrated when our Amazon packages aren't arriving by 5 o'clock on the second day. Today, it takes us no more than 28 hours to get anywhere in the civilized world. Anywhere, and maybe another day or two more if we want to get somewhere else. But the Pony Express reminds us that information didn't always travel that fast. It didn't always travel that fast. And there was a particular trip that was taken. It was, in, it was right around 61 AD. Two men left Rome. They were carrying three, probably four, maybe more letters to churches and individuals. These two men, well, they came from completely different backgrounds. They had completely different, vastly different life experiences. During Paul's third missionary journey, he met Tychicus in AD 57. And they made their way to Troas together from this region up here down to Troas. So he sent Tychicus ahead with a few other Christians, and Paul met up with them five days later in Troas. And they spent seven days in Troas, where Luke says they came together to break bread. From the beginning of Acts, we see that Christians would break bread together. That was a common practice, and we still hold that here today. We see the elements here on the table, and after I'm done and after you're you're done graciously listening to me, those who have trusted Christ as their savior are going to have an opportunity to do that again, to break bread together, to remember Jesus just as he asked us to do. The simple elements, the bread, the cup, object lessons of what Christ has done for us in his death on the cross for our sins. We often get co- so caught up in our daily lives and we we sometimes need that kick up the backside. I know I do to be reminded of what really matters, Jesus. Well, Paul starts preaching that evening in Troas, and and I wonder what his sermon was on that night, because you see people all around were gathered together at night afterwards, unlike today where we have two days of the week off. They only had one day of the week off on Saturday. So this was a Sunday evening, and It was the first day of the week, and so after a long, hard day of work, the people gathered together and sat and listened to Paul. Now, I might imagine that his sermon was on something exciting, some exciting text that you might find in what we call the Old Testament. And he would expound upon the pictures of Christ in Gideon and the conquest that Joshua might have to to picture our battle over sin in our lives and just the continuing conquering. Whatever it was that he preached on, it was a long sermon because he spoke until midnight. And maybe it wasn't an exciting text that Paul was preaching on that day. Maybe it was a passage like what we have today or like Numbers chapter 2 where Moses lists the tribe's Of Israel and their leaders and where they were in the camp of Israel when they were in the wilderness and who cares? Well, certainly not Eutychus because it got to the point where Eutychus fell asleep and fell three stories out the window all the way to the ground. Paul goes out, prays over Eutychus, returns to preaching, and when daybreak had come, Paul leaves. The young man is brought back inside alive. And I love the words that Luke uses. And he uses it in modesty. He says, the believers there were not a little comforted. That kind of comfort can only come in knowing Jesus as your Savior. That night Tychicus was there. Tychicus, he traveled with Paul to Troas, listened to that sermon, broke bread with Paul and the believers in Troas, and watched a man be brought back to life. Three years later, Paul is under house arrest in Rome. And Tychicus is with Paul again. He's with him in Rome. But Tychicus isn't under a house arrest or under arrest like like Paul is. He's he's simply a companion of Paul's. And Paul, uh, let me set the record, he's not in a dark, dank prison cell holding on to his last chance of life. He has freedom to see people. That, that, that image will come later when he's writing his book to, to Timothy, what we call our second Timothy. But his movement isn't restrictive. We see at the end of Acts that he's able to make the most of it. People would come and listen to Paul and learn about Christ. His ministry did not stop because he had chains on his wrist and lived with a Roman guard. Well, one day a man came into his presence. This man was probably uh, in Rome probably trying to escape from his past. You see, you know people like that. You know people. And maybe you were one of those people that had been trying to escape from your past. You're trying to blend in, trying to to escape, and you think that you can be hidden from the truth. This man was living a new life that he had never had before a life where he can make his own decisions, decide what he wanted to do because in his former life, he was told what to do and when to do it. The sights and sounds of the Roman capital would have captivated this man. I imagine that people were always coming and going and as he crossed the path of the Colosseum for the first time with the Parthenon, he would just stand in awe at its grandeur. Well, one day he met a man who was interested in his life. And as they grew closer to one another, the man suggested, hey, I think there's someone that might be of interest for you to meet. But you're going to have to go see him because he can't come to see you. And so this man goes and sees Paul and listens to him. And as time went on, this man accepted Christ as his Savior because of Paul. Because of the ministry that Paul has. Now we don't know exactly how it happened. But we do know that one day Paul came in contact with Onesimus. And as a result, Onesimus was born again. But I imagine that as the weeks went by and they grew closer to one another, Paul and Onesimus learned more about one another's lives. And one day it comes out that Onesimus is from Colossae. He's from the town of the city of Colossae. And and Paul might have responded, You live in Colossae? You lived in Colossae, Onesimus? Well, you must want to go back there sometimes. And I, I tell you what, I know a man here who has planted churches back in Colossae. And when you go back to see your friends and your family, you must visit those churches for me. But as the conversation goes on and their relationship grows, Onesimus gets convicted by the Holy Spirit. You know, Paul? I told you that I came from Colossae, but that's not the whole truth. You see, I wasn't exactly I wasn't exactly a man of significance there in Colossae. In fact, I was a slave and I worked for a man named Philemon. You know Philemon, Onesimus? Well, I led that old boy to Christ. Hey, many years ago, I led that old boy to Christ. You've got to say hi to Philemon for me when you go back to Colossae. Say hi to Philemon and Apphia for me. Paul, the truth is, I didn't just work for Philemon. I was a slave in his house. And when I left, I robbed that man blind. And I used that to pay my way to Rome. I have nothing left. I don't think I could ever go back there. I tell you what, Onesimus, I'm writing some letters to a few churches. I'm going to write one to Philemon for you. I'm going to write a letter to Philemon, and I want you to take this letter back. And before you say anything to him, and before he has a chance to say anything to you, I want you to hand this letter to him, and I want you to have him read it. Paul wrote a letter to Philemon and his wife, Apphia. Onesimus, Tychicus, they carried that letter and the letter to the Colossians and the letter to those in Ephesus and probably a letter to the Laodiceans. Those Roman roads that created the network of cities that that made trade routes throughout the ancient empire, they would be used by Tychicus and Onesimus to carry those letters from Rome to Ephesus. Imagine them walking together in companionship together with one another. They probably reminisced about their different life experiences and what it was like. Tychicus was a man that could encourage others, and he was a faithful minister that we read. Who in your life has been a faithful minister to you? Who in your life was someone that you could walk with in life and be encouraged by? Who in your life could you share the hesitation and trepidation of what lies ahead like Onesimus might have shared with Tychicus as he feared the response of Philemon upon his return and that he would receive the encouragement from your heart. You know, we sang that you know, I'm sorry, you never leave my side. We sang that after we, we read Psalm 23, but you never leave my side. And sometimes the Lord uses people and puts them by your side to share the love of Christ. In Psalm 23, the psalmist is talking about being in the valley. God uses men and women in your lives to comfort you when you're in that valley. That deep, abiding encouragement that you just know comes from the Holy Spirit. You need to take inventory of your sisters and brothers who are here, who are in Christ, who have been an encouragement to you. Take inventory of who they are. When uncertainties lie ahead, reach out to a fellow companion in Christ. So that you can share your heart with them, and so that your heart can be encouraged, just as Tychicus would do. Take time, if you see a struggling brother or sister, to come alongside of them, and be an encouragement to their heart. Now, I imagine that these first these men uh, first came to the capital of that Asia province in Ephesus, and upon their arrival, they would be welcomed probably not much unlike what we would do here. They would give them a potluck dinner. They would bring them in, find a house for them to stay at. And then as the evening would wind down, the church would stand up, read the letter that Paul had written to them. And then Tychicus would give a missionary report of all that had happened. All that had happened in Paul's life since they last heard about it, because it wasn't like they could look at his Facebook page They had to wait for these letters and for people coming by to share the ministry and what was happening. And now Tychicus steps into his strong suit. He's going to encourage, he would comfort their hearts with words of encouragement, spurring them on in unity and grace, reinforcing the principles that Paul had written in that letter that we call Ephesians. Then they would have traveled on the road. There's a, a Roman road that led straight over here to Laodicea. And they would drop off the letter there to the believers. And I'd imagine just like in Ephesus, they would have been welcomed warmly. They would have done the same thing. And then they, after departing Laodicea, I expect that the two men would journey onward. First, to Philemon's house. They'd go to Philemon's house where Onesimus would have to confront his past sins. He could have been nervous. We aren't told that that Philemon and Apphia responded as Paul had asked them to. But I like to think that upon learning of Onesimus' salvation, that Apphia and, and Philemon would have rejoiced together. That they would have embraced Onesimus as one of their own. that they would have treated Onesimus as they would have treated Paul, just as he had asked. And then finally, these two men, carrying this letter that we call the Colossians, make their way to Colossae. And when the two men arrive, they deliver the letter that we call Colossians. And when they deliver that letter, just like in Ephesus, Tychicus gives them a report of Paul's recent missionary journey his house arrest in Rome. Except this time there's something more that can be said. You see, the Colossian believers must have known Onesimus. Or if they hadn't known him, they must must have known about his past and how he had robbed Philemon and and, and, and Apphia and how he ran away with their belongings. And Paul adds a unique phrase. He says, he is one of you. Paul wasn't talking about Onesimus being a, uh, a fellow Christian. He, was, uh, he wasn't talking about Onesimus being from Colossae. He was talking about Onesimus being a fellow believer in Christ, being a fellow Christian. And there are worlds different between being just somebody from another city, And being a fellow believer in Christ. No matter what their past. When someone is a new creation in Christ. They are family. And we need to welcome them in as family. And show them the love. Just as Christ has shown us love. There are people that have been outright rejected by their family. Because they have been born again. They have been outright rejected by their family. But when they turn to the body of Christ. They have received love and comfort. Unlike anything they could have ever imagined. Let that be said here at Redeemer Fellowship that when someone walks through these doors that they receive the love and comfort of Christ and then they will know that we are Christians by our love. So the next person that Paul mentions in his letter is Aristarchus. Aristarchus was, uh, he was from Thessalonica. Aristarchus was from Thessalonica and I mentioned how Paul was in Thessalonica in 51 AD, about 10 years earlier. Well, after spending just three weeks there, the Jews in Thessalonica run, ran uh, Paul out of the city with Silas, but they didn't stop there. The Jews chased him another 45 miles down the road to Berea and chased him out of there. And this angry mob caused Paul to be concerned for the believers Thessalonica. So he writes them two letters while he's in in Corinth. And we see just five years later that Aristarchus shows up again. And he joins Paul in Ephesus in 56 AD. And so while there, Paul taught for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. I expect that it's during this uh, period of time that Philemon had business dealings in Ephesus. And Philemon would have been a a wealthier person having had slaves. And he would have gone to Ephesus. And he might have come in contact with Paul. and, And there he could have led him to Christ. And while Paul was here, near the end of those two years, while he was in Ephesus, a riot breaks out. And there was this man named Demetrius who was a silversmith. You see, he was losing money. Because people weren't buying idols anymore there in Ephesus. And so he stirs up the crowd. People are turning to Jesus and he's stirring up the crowd. And it causes such a commotion that the people grab and seize Aristarchus. They grab him and they rush him into the big town square, so to speak. And the people are shouting for two straight hours. And there's great uncertainty for Aristarchus. He doesn't know what's going to happen But the officials of the city, who were friends of Paul's, they calmed the situation down. They dismissed the assembly using reason, and Aristarchus is let go. He was in the midst of the crowd shouting, expecting to be murdered. He was in the center of conflict, and he came out of a way. This man did not shy away from conflict. He saw conflict at the very beginning of his uh, his, uh, Christian life in Thessalonica. He saw it again when he was chased out from town to town. He saw it in Ephesus, and three years later, after Paul is arrested in Jerusalem, Aristarchus is listed among those people that joins the ship that sails from from the region around Israel making his way over to Rome. Think about that. Aristarchus had trusted Christ and over those 10 years, he's seen persecution. He's experienced riots. He's witnessed the arrest uh, arrest of Paul almost being pulled to pieces by the crowds. And now he's getting on a boat in the middle of winter to sail with Paul in the worst time of the year. He gets shipwrecked on Malta with Paul. This man has been through thick and thin with Paul. But I love how dedicated Aristarchus is. Look at that. He says, My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus continued to work alongside Paul. Think about it what it means to you to have someone working alongside with you, to have you, uh, to, to be by your side through the thick and thin of life, someone who loves you enough and loves Jesus enough to not care about the hardships of life, but care about having life and sharing life with you. If you want to know who your true traveling companions are in life, look around for Aristarchus. He takes many forms and if you look closely you might see him. You might see him in your sister in Christ as you go to the doctor with her and you first learn of the gravity of the cancer that you have. You might see Aristarchus in your brother in Christ as he stands by your side when you lose your job and you're, you're, you're contemplating what am I going to do to support my family. You might see him in your sister in Christ when when she helps bring clarity to that chaotic situation that seems to be just spinning out of control. Where do you see Aristarchus today? Paul mentions two other people together. He mentions Mark and Justice. Now these two men are like Paul in that they are both Jews. And I find this very interesting because at the same time, that Paul mentions these, he mentions a list of 10 different individuals. 10 different individuals that come from vastly different backgrounds. You'll find Jews and Greeks. You'll find rich and poor. You'll find young and old. You'll find slaves and masters. 10 different individuals with different social standing, but all with one Lord and Savior. The world, make no mistake... The gospel of Jesus Christ is the revolution in this world and the world has been trying to catch up with this for the last 2,000 years. The gospel of Jesus Christ has united people from all over with no regard for their race, social standing, their gender or age. There is no partiality with God and this list of names here in Colossians proves just that. In Thessalonica, Paul and Silas planted a church. And they were quickly run out of town. They planted a church in Berea and were quickly run out of town there too. Paul was physically there in those cities. But what about those places that Paul or Silas or Peter didn't physically go to? You see, we never read that in the book of Acts that Paul went to Laodicea or went to Colossae. There's, the, 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 the maps don't show his journey as, as stopping there and planting a church. But instead, what you have in this list of names is an example of those who have taken up the responsibility to continue planting churches, reaching out into new territories. Epaphras, he's a missionary, and he's probably the one that started and planted at least three churches the church in Colossae, the church in Laodicea, and the, in the church in Aeropolis. Notice how Paul refers to them as one of you and gives testimony how he worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Aeropolis. There are people who have gone out from here as a representation of you as missionaries into the world. There's Fred Kleck in Philadelphia Mark and Ruth Harbour in Taiwan. There's Dave Terranova in, in Barcelona, Spain. There's Freddy and Linka Smola in, in, in the Czech Republic. You've got Robin Lawrence in Central Asia. Matt and Lee Duenels in the Philippines. And don't you think that those who we have sent out, who are traveling abroad, are thinking of us just like Epaphras? I've spoken with missionaries. I've spoken with missionaries who have a heart like a Epaphras, who have struggled in their prayers about their churches back home, who have struggled in prayers on behalf of their churches back home. They work hard for the furtherance of the gospel for us. So let us not forget them because they have not forgotten us. In Colossians chapter 1, we get more insight into Epaphras' ministry. You see that while he was still in Colossae, we learned that Epaphras was a preacher and he taught them about the grace of God in truth. I praise the Lord for men and women who have taught me about the grace of God in truth. Love is a great motivator and when someone has a love for sharing the grace of God with others, they too should be considered a fellow servant of Jesus Christ. Look around at the people in your life. Look around at those who have shared the grace of God to you. Epaphras not only worked actively while he was in their midst, but he continued to pray for them while he was on the mission field and I love what he prays for. He prays that they would stand mature, fully assured in all the will of God. Now, that is a big thing to pray for. He doesn't stand that they would uh, uh, you know, kind of embrace or try to get to know. what the, he would, That they would stand fully assured and know. That is completely different. I love that prayer. And I I love how Paul picks up on Epaphras' prayer because you see that they say that he would be filled with all knowledge of his will and in all spiritual understanding. Consider those two words, that they would be filled, that they would have all wisdom. That's great. That's great stuff. Praise the Lord for those prayer warriors in our midst there's prayer warriors that we have sent out and are praying for us. Let us not forget them and continue to pray for them so that we too can be fully assured. So our time is going by quickly now and I want to say a word or two about Luke and Demas because there's something in common there. Then I want to move on to Nympha and Archippus. So Luke, as you'd probably surmise, is the author of two books in the in the uh, New Testament, the book of Acts, and the Gospel of Luke. And it's actually Bible facts. Luke wrote more words than anybody else in the New Testament. A Greek, the only Greek, wrote more words in the New Testament than any other individual. So I mentioned that Luke was present for such things as uh, the shipwreck on Malta. Demas, on the other hand... Demas is only mentioned three times, and in all three times, he's mentioned in the same passages as Luke. The first two times, it is simply a greeting, but in Paul's last letter to 2 Timothy, that we call 2 Timothy, he says that Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and departed. Only Luke is with me. What a contrast we have between these two men. We should be like Epaphras and struggle in prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ because we need to guard against the temptations of this present world, and we need to look out for our sisters and brothers in Christ who are struggling lest they fall away and become an example like Demas was. So I mentioned earlier that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the revolution, and I use the example of all the different nationalities, but I want to talk about something a little different as we talk about Nympha, because her hosting a church in her house is a demonstration of what the Lord thinks of people. You see, what was the view of women when Paul was writing these words? We, we, we can have an idea of what the view of women was for the Greek world by looking at ancient Greek culture and We all think, wow, the ancient Greeks were civilized people. We like their various philosophers. We think that they should be a model for us in the way that we think. But what did they think of women? You ever think about that? What did they think of women? Because in this age in which Paul is writing these words, to Greeks, the women were around for three reasons. Pleasure, slaves for daily care, taking care of your house, and wives to provide legitimate children. Aristotle, the teacher of Alexander the Great, he taught that women were inferior to men and that by nature the male was higher than the female. This and the idea that that the male are higher than the female, it's penetrated the world so deeply that the world is still trying to catch up With what the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches about God's view of women. We here in the West think that we have been ahead of this whole equality thing for a long time. Well, that's just not true. Harriet Beecher Stowe, she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, and it spoke out against slavery in the United States. And the 13th Amendment was signed in 1865, it abolished slavery in the United States. But four years later, Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote, the position of a married woman is, in many respects, precisely similar to that of the Negro slave. She can make no contract and hold no property. Whatever she inherits or or earns becomes at that moment the property of her husband. Though he acquired a fortune for her or though she earned a fortune through her talents, he is the sole master of it, and she cannot draw a penny. In English common law, a married woman is nothing at all. She passes out of legal existence. Anyone who has ever said that the Bible or that the New Testament is a book that degrades women has never really read the Bible. In a society where women were seen as second class or third class citizens, our Savior first appeared to women. He first appeared to women to proclaim the good news of his resurrection. In a society where women were considered property to men, we see women as equals. Just as Paul wrote, we call it the book of Philemon, but it's really the book of Philemon and Apphia. We see that in Priscilla and Aquila as they are constantly mentioned together. And he, There's an equality among women. Paul's words to the Galatians, he specifically addresses the point of unity and oneness that clearly points us to what God's view of people is. And he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and Nympha, she is another example of a woman in Christ who exemplifies the hospitality that Christians the world over have shown one another. My brother is a pastor out in Kansas, and I imagine that he would describe Nympha as the hostess with the mostess. And guys... I understand you may work hard, but I wondered, is it really called Nympha's house? Because she's the one that takes care of it and she's the one that is the reason that things get put in place together and is ready to host the church in her house? Because women today, they prepare their their houses for guests and they make it a haven for families. And she worked hard in order to keep her house in order and a room ready so that the believers can gather together. And that's exactly like women today. Women who open their home to share the love of Christ with what they've been given. Women who have spent a lifetime ministering in hospitality and service through their homes. And finally, we come to Archippus. Now, I like Archippus. I think uh, I think there's a reason why he is not very prevalent in Scripture, and I think it's because he, I think it's because he's young. You see, he's he's mentioned one other time in the New Testament, and he's mentioned in the book of Philemon. He's mentioned in the book of Philemon, and through that, I gather that Archie was the son of Philemon and. Aphia. but think about it he's just like some of the younger people here people here in this church growing up surrounded by other Christians growing up in the Lord and you know leadership one day it needs to be passed over to the next generation it needs to be it will be whether we like it or not because the reality is we all won't be here forever it's happened from generation to generation, and some people think that they're too young to play a role in this church, and that's, that's just naivete, and that's not what I see Paul sharing about Archippus. I see him, in him, I see a young man who has an uncertain future ahead of him full of opportunity. I see a young generation rushing forward with fresh ideas to help the spread of the gospel. I look around this room and I see Archippus in the young people here. Paul's words to Archippus are see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. If your ministry is to be a parent, see that you fulfill your ministry. If your ministry is to be an encourager, see that you fulfill your ministry. If your ministry is to be a hostess, see that you fulfill your ministry. And if your ministry is to be a prayer warrior, see that you fulfill your ministry. And if your ministry is to be a missionary, see that you fulfill your ministry. Because what really matters in life are the people and they need to see in us the love of Christ and the grace of God for we as for as we have many members in one body but all members do not have the same function so we being many are one body in Christ Jesus and individually members of one another. You, you are our epistle, written on our hearts, known and read by men all over. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but, with, but by the Spirit of the living God, and not on tablets of stone, but on the flesh that is of the heart. Praise the Lord. Let's close in prayer, and then Tim, I'll turn it over to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the salvation that we have through him. But but you went beyond that, and you gave us fellow Christians, fellow fellow laborers, brothers and sisters in Christ, a family that we can go together and just minister your will to one another, to people outside in the world to be a light so that your love will be known by all people i ask that you would just help us to be to be sensitive to the people around us that are that our opportunities To encourage one another, to to comfort others, to pray for one another, to to be a witness, to teach, to host, to to be Christians would be seen by the world. We thank you and we look forward to remembering your son here. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.